Um, all right. So today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1, 17 to 2, 7, and then we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. So before I begin, I want to talk a little bit about the scripture reading that we had. So in Joshua chapter 7, we saw the sin of Achan. And it's actually very telling in regards to corporate sin. Achan, after hearing explicitly in chapter 6 that he was not to take the things that were to be devoted to God because it would bring trouble on Israel, he did it anyway. And what we read in Joshua 7 is that it was the people of Israel who broke faith in regard to the devoted things. So Achan did it, but it was the people of Israel who broke faith. Because of this, it says the Lord's anger was burned against Israel. And then in the next battle, 36 men were killed. Notice that God held all of Israel accountable for the sin of just one man. Why? Israel, God's people, are a covenant people. There isn't one covenant for Achan and another one for Joshua and the elders. They're all one people before God. See, corporate sin is very real. Though we may not have directly participated in it, we can be affected by things that happened before we were ever on the scene. We should repent for the things that were done before us that were left in an unrepentant state so that we will not continue to reap the fruit of unconfessed and unrepented of sin. Now, I know that this sounds funny to our modern ears, our modern individualistic ears, but it is true and it is biblical. In fact, Joshua chapter 7 isn't the only place that you see it. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel repents on behalf of Israel of things that he didn't personally do. How is that? In the book of Ezra, chapter 9, Ezra repents of things. Marrying foreigners, all these different things. Things that he didn't personally do. And if you really want to push it farther, even Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 entered into the baptism of repentance of John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist said, listen, you don't need to repent. And Jesus said, I'm going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And even after that, then the father, after the baptism, came and sent the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, showing that Jesus Christ had no sin, yet Jesus Christ repented on behalf of Israel. See, corporate guilt is real. And things that were not repented of in the past by, by a corporation must be confessed and repented over in order for God's blessings to return upon that corporation. Why is this, though, for Christians? It has to do with the reality of our union with Christ. Now, you may be saying, what? How did, what does that have to do with anything? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Can I read that again? He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So we are all one in Jesus Christ, as Galatians 3.28 teaches us. Romans 5.12-21 teaches a covenantal understanding that we are all guilty in Adam. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, how is this fair? fair? How could I be guilty in Adam? What did I ever do? How can a whole community even be held accountable for one's man's actions? I'd like you to think that through very carefully before you think that. Because the Bible also teaches a covenantal understanding of all those who are cleansed in Christ. So I want to answer your question with another question. How can one man's work of redemption be applied to all of you? It's the covenant. God operates through covenants. Now, you might be asking, will I be held liable for my father's sins? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean you don't experience the judgment for your father's sins. Think about it for a moment. If you're a child and your dad has a drinking or gambling problem, will it affect you? Yes, very much so. But if I am not a part of your family, will, it be, will I be affected? Well, possibly if he drives down the road drunk and hits me or hits my family. You see, the reality is, is that there is a sense that someone's personal sin affects the entire corporation. Think about an employee or a government official who embezzles funds. Their sin brings shame and guilt upon the entire corporation or upon the whole city, doesn't it? When they do this, if justice is not brought to bear, the corporation becomes complicit with them. And now the corporation is guilty because they did not deal with it. The implications of this are far-reaching. It impacts nations. It impacts churches. It impacts families. Any institution like this that has representative leadership, mayors, elders, fathers, mothers, is duty-bound to exercise justice and mercy. And when they don't, they are complicit in the guilt and are thus held guilty before God. And quite frankly, even people and nations hold people accountable like this, doesn't it? What happens when a CEO embezzles funds? He goes to jail. We understand this. And those people who knew about it but don't do it are also implicated and will also go to jail. We understand covenantal, this idea of covenantal stuff. It happens everywhere. Because of this fact and the fact that some institutions, like a church, explicitly say they are led by Christ, God will discipline those. Those who reject Christ and aren't under his rule or say they're not simply will be judged and punished. But for those who are under Christ, his discipline is meant to lead them to repentance. This is what we're going to see in today's text. You see, corporate entities like the church who are led by elders will be judged 
and they will eventually be shut down unless they turn to God in zealous repentance. Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. And I ask, will you let me in and come so that I can come and eat with you? The fellowship of Jesus that we experience as a church or don't experience and the longevity of our church into the future is dependent upon whether we will turn from our sin, repent, and follow Jesus. Now, before I read the text, a brief background for brevity. I'm just, I just snagged this from the ESV Bible by Crossway because I agree with it. So I'm just going to quote it verbatim. So if you have the ESV Bible by Crossway, it's in the introduction section. The revelation of Jesus Christ, that's what revelation is called, was probably written by the Apostle John while in exile on the island of Patmos, off the coast of present-day Turkey. It was addressed to seven actual churches. Revelation begins with letters from Christ himself to these churches, letters that include commendation, criticism, and comfort. Then comes a long series of visions of judgment on the wicked, all in highly symbolic language. The church is depicted under great distress, but is assured of the final triumph of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, bringing to an end the rebellion of humanity and ushering in a new heaven and a new earth where God himself will reign forever and ever. Revelation was probably written A.D. 95 to 96. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in Revelation chapter 1. We'll read through 2.7 and we'll jump to chapter 3, verse 14 through the end. When I saw him, that's Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you see have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. And all God's people said, Amen. O Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come and make yourself present, Jesus, through your Spirit right now? Would you bring clarity to this text Clarity to my mind. Bring clarity to the mind of your people. Would you bring conviction of sin and assurance of pardon by your power? Let these words not be with eloquence. Let these words not be the words of men, but these words might be from you, O God, and they might be in spirit, your spirit, and with power. And I ask these things for your glory, and for the sake of your church, your bride, Jesus, in your name, amen. Take a deep breath. This is heavy, and this is a heavy sermon. But it doesn't mean there isn't life and joy from it. So I need you to listen to suspend some of the things that you might be thinking and hear the words of God. Our passage begins here with the Apostle John lying in fear on the ground as if he was dead. Reminds you of the passage from Isaiah, doesn't it? Why? He is before the King of Kings, Jesus. It takes the right hand of Jesus Christ touching him and it takes the words, the power of Jesus being spoken to him to take away his fear. King Jesus, the first and the last, the one who was put to death but rose again on the third day, who defeated death and hell and now holds their keys, is lifting John up. In other words, he's saying that anyone found in Christ has victory over death and hell. In Christ, he's saying, we are more than conquerors. Jesus then tells John to write everything down in this book we call Revelation. And it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are Jesus' words, especially to the churches. So the first point I want to make is that Jesus is in charge of his true churches. You see this in 117 to 21. You see, Jesus gives John a sort of key to unlocking the meaning of two very important things that you find in the book. First, the seven stars at Jesus' right hand. And second is the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are clearly spelled out. There's no debate about that. They are seven churches, real churches, that you could go to real cities and there would be real people just like you in them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But what are the seven stars? What are these angels of the seven churches? Are these sinless angels that, we, that were put in charge of these particular person, churches to watch over them? Are they a reference to the personification or the prevailing spirit of the church? Are these messengers that John sent to, the, to these churches? 
Though some argue these three views, and others, by the way, I would actually say probably not. My opinion here is that the Greek word, which is angeloi, it is a word that can mean angels, spiritual beings, yes, but it can also mean messengers. And so the most of the book, as you read it, it's clear that these angels, these are angels, literal spiritual beings, because they're going around and they're doing all these things that only angels could do, opening bowls, you know, things like that. Um, and so the reality is, is, is that it is referred to this. But if you look at this text in here, you should also understand that there are places in the Bible, for instance, John the Baptist is called an angelo, a messenger. In James... It says that the spies of Rahab were angels or messengers, the same Greek word. So either literal angels, prevailing spirits, or messengers, or another view which I hold, which is that they were the messengers that Jesus had commissioned for these churches. The reason I say that is because they are faulted. Did you read it? He writes to the angels and says, you are at fault. You are guilty. You need to repent. Last time I checked, fallen uh, angels don't need to repent because they're perfect. They don't sin, right? And fallen angels can't repent. And so I don't think it's angels. So it could be a messenger that John had sent, perhaps. Um, and and I, I just want to be clear to you, like, this is, there are other people who hold different views. I just think it makes sense that the usage here is referring to I, what I believe are the elders or the pastors that are found in these churches. These pastors or elders, in my opinion, are faulted or approved by how the church was functioning at the time. And I think this letter, it makes these letters make sense. So if you look at 120 and 2.1, you can see that these pastors or elders, according to my view, are held in Jesus' right hand. And what does this mean? To be held in the right hand of Jesus is actually saying that they are under Christ's absolute control. The elders and pastors of the church are supposed to be under the absolute control of Jesus Christ. And they are supposed to be being ruled by Christ and executing his will for the church. And this is where the rub is. The elders and the churches have wandered from Jesus' control. They are doing some things that Jesus wants, but in other areas, they are doing whatever they want. More on this in a bit. But there is something else we see in chapter 2, verse 1, that is quite marvelous. It says that Jesus walks among the lampstands. Jesus is said to walk among the churches. Jesus' presence is among the churches. So how does Jesus write the letter to all these churches and he says, I know your works? It's because he's there. Jesus is in this church, walking around this church, looking at what we are doing, looking at what we are not doing. Let's get to point two in Ephesus, verses two to seven. Repent and turn back to loving Jesus. The idea that Christ is among the church. 
should have been so striking and cut the Ephesians people to the heart and the elders. Because they are told to said that they have left their first love. Even Jesus. Jesus is walking around amidst, among the church, and they have left their first love. They are concerned about doctrinal purity, which is good, a good thing. They are concerned about immorality, which is a good thing. They are even doing such a good job to finding false apostles and rooting them out. Good job, Jesus says. And they're even fighting and not giving up, not growing weary. We see that in verse 3. But he says that they have abandoned the love that they had at first. And then he tells them where they have fallen from, the love of Christ and they are to repent and turn back to the words they had at first. Now, I think that this is a reference to the fact that as Christians in the church, we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. The works that you return to are the work of love, the work of loving Jesus, the work of following the Jesus, the work of not wandering from him. I think their love shifted from Jesus to a love of making sure that everything is precisely right. Let's make sure that we get these apostles right. Let's make sure that we get our morality right. Let's make sure of all these things. And there is a way to do these type of things and have it do nothing, have nothing to do with Jesus. There is a way to live a moral life in a church and do churchy things and have nothing to do with Jesus and honestly care nothing about him. Doing stuff for its own sake and not for Jesus' sake and not for Jesus' love is very clearly seen as a problem at the church in Ephesus. These guys are so good in some ways they even hate the work of the Nicolaitans. These were probably people that leaned towards some heresies, like either Gnosticism or probably immorality. They're saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. Just live it up. Sexual sin, it doesn't matter. You're, you're one. You're clean in Jesus. This is the kind of things they were saying. They were like, we hate those people. And Jesus says, I don't like them either. I hate them too. And he says, that's a good job. But is that all they have? Think about it. A church that looks at the outside world or people inside the world that are living in immorality and says, we don't like those people. They're wrong. And it could be that they are wrong. And they are wrong. But is that, is that what you've got? Is that your love? Making sure that things are precise. Making sure you're calling out all the things that are wrong. And making sure you're clean. That's, that's not what Jesus wants. Look at this, though. Man, he says, oh, if you repent, oh, if you repent, then he says that I will grant to you, to the one who conquers, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Fellowship. Eternal fellowship. 
If they refuse to repent, though, he tells them if they don't turn back and pursue the love of Jesus Christ with a white-hot flame of love, essentially, he's like, I'm going to shut your church down. You know that's what this is saying, right? I will remove your lampstand is a metaphorical way of saying, I'm closing the church down. You think you're doing a great job? I don't care. I don't care about these five things you're doing right if you're not doing it out of love for me. I'm going to shut you down. Because it doesn't honor Christ if you're not living for Christ and loving Christ. You see, repentance is corporate. Who's he talking to? Talking to the elders. Talking to the pastor, I think. The church is a corporate identity. If the church is lethargic in its love for Jesus, the elders must repent for allowing it to get that way. And the people must join them in repentance for not keeping their love for Jesus strong, even through difficulties. You see, even if I or the session have failed you in the past or will fail you, and I assure you we will in the future, by letting the church's church's love for Christ dwindle, and I hope we will not do that, That does not leave you as God's people off the hook. Your love for Christ must remain no matter what happens around you. Having said this, since the elders have been put in place by Jesus and are accountable for shepherding the sheep, we must lead in repentance. The elders must lead in repentance. We must demonstrate for you that as Martin Luther said in his first theses of the 95, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Whenever we as elders or you as and I as individuals and families have been complacent or complicit in letting our love for Christ dwindle, we must repent and turn back to Jesus. And this is why I want you to think back on Joshua 7, our illustration about a father's drunkenness or gambling habit. If the elders of the church have not been zealous in loving God's commands and following them, of teaching God's people to do the same, and have not been vigilant in shepherding God's people into Christ, the people will suffer. The church will suffer. And it seems from what Jesus says to Ephesus that he will close the church down. Those accountable must repent. But more than this, the sins of the past that brought us to where we are must be repented of corporately. Like Achan, there will be no success without removing the cursed thing. If elders have been harsh with our people, lax in evangelism, not listening to the voice of Jesus, not ministering to our community, or simply just failing to lead well, we must repent for this and turn back to Jesus. But if you as people have failed in any of the same ways, you also must repent and turn back to Jesus. It is not just the elder's fault. You know this. Your kids know this. You can, people can bring you and bring you to temptation, but you're the one who has to do it. And if you let your love for Jesus grow cold, the elders may be complicit in it, but you are the ones who are also guilty. If I do the same, I am also guilty. But we must not look at this and be depressed We must see, as the letter to the church in Laodicea says, that the Lord reproves and disciplines the one he loves. As a son, he disciplines us. 
We know we are children and we are his children when he comes to the angels of the churches and commands them to repent. This is a sign of his grace, a sign of his love and his desire to use them for the future and continue to be with them. And repentance leads to great joy, as Psalm 51 shows us. In other words, Jesus, by convicting us, is trying to give us joy. This is amazing. And here's what I want to say. The fact that the Lord put this upon the heart of myself, of the session, is a sign that he is active and alive in this church. It's a sign that he loves you. The discipline that we are receiving through this sermon is a love, a sign of his love. Next week, I'm going to preach a sermon, hopefully, of healing and help. Hebrews chapter 12 on the Lord loves the ones he disciplines for their sons. And then next week, the session is going to take the time up of our corporate confession of sin. And the session is going to repent of various things. But let's look at one more letter, the letter of Laodicea. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 32. Jesus opens his letter to the elders of Laodicea and he proclaims that he is the amen, the truth. He is faithful and true, the beginning of God's creation. In other words, Jesus is the first fruit of God's new creation and the one who created everything, the one who's the source of all. And what he says can be taken to the bank and cashed. He never lies. In Laodicea, they had water there, but it was aqueduct in. Colossae, which was 10 miles east, had cold, pure drinking water that was refreshing. And the Heriopolis, six miles north, had hot springs which were medicinal. Laodicea had aqueduct, and by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was warm and gross. It was tipid and contaminated with minerals, essentially not good for healing or refreshing. Jesus wants them to either be healing or refreshing, but the church of Laodicea is instead, it's gross, so gross that Jesus says, I will spew it out of my mouth. The Greek word is actually vomit, it's not spit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's that repulsive to Christ. They were caught up, if you look, in their wealth. They were caught up in their self-sufficiency. They thought they had everything that they needed. Money, stuff, whatever. But they were impoverished because they could do nothing without abiding in Christ Jesus. They were abiding in their own strength and not in Jesus, and so they were useless, empty, and worthless. They were not offering life or healing to their community, to one another, because they were all caught up in themselves. A church, to be a true church, must be inhabited by Jesus Christ. It must abide in Christ. It must do nothing unless it hears its master Jesus tell them what to do. It must not do things because it has always done it that way or because it might be better if they did it that way, pragmatically, practically, whatever the case may be. Instead, it must be directed by the Christ and by his spirit. The church must come to Jesus for riches not their own ideas or plans. They must come to Jesus for their clothing, not their own righteousness. They must come to Jesus to have their blinded eyes healed. Jesus must give sight to their eyes so they can see him. Jesus is everything 
to a true church in which Jesus walks among. But this rebuke should give you courage and comfort, as I said, because you are loved by Jesus. When Jesus controls his elders, reproving and disciplining them, when Jesus reproves and disciplines his church he, and calls them to repentance and calls his people to repent, it means that Jesus is actively engaged in this church. If you don't hear, if you don't hear conviction of sin, you are in a church that doesn't have Jesus there. If all you hear is things that make you feel good, you don't have Jesus. When you hear conviction and discipline and you have discipleship, Jesus is present and Jesus is working. And so Jesus reproves and disciplines because he loves. And there is only one response. You're hearing this this morning. It's Jesus. He's knocking. Are you going to open the door? Is this session, is this church going to open the door and let Jesus come in? Because if we do, He promises something, that He's going to come in and feast with us. Oh, not in eternity, brothers and sisters. That will happen. But He's saying that He will come and feast with us now, in the present. His presence among the churches will move from not just a presence looking around and monitoring you, but from a presence who's sitting down and eating with you. Delighting to have conversation with you. You speaking to him, him speaking to you. He wants fellowship with us. And for this to happen, this church, and in any church, quite frankly, it is going to require one simple thing. And he tells us right here in chapter 3, verse 19. Be zealous and repent. And when you do, when we do, we will have conquered sin in Christ. And we are promised that we will reign with him in eternity, sitting with him on his throne. In other words, we are promised to share with him in his reign. What a glorious promise to share in the reign of Jesus. The message to the churches is coming from the spirit of Christ. When Jesus speaks to the church through his spirit, the church must listen and act upon what it hears. Now, here is the heavy part of the sermon, the application. What does it mean? First, our church, whether we want to admit it or not, has corporate guilt. Whether we are comfortable, whether you are comfortable hearing this or not, right now it is true. We as a church are guilty of many things that have never been publicly acknowledged. Things that happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and over the last two decades. There is a line of people who could probably bring indictment after indictment against us. But this isn't our biggest problem. Our problem is, is that we are guilty for these things before God, who is holy. Now, before I mention several areas of which we are guilty, I want to say a few things. First, I am new here. And you might be thinking that he is just pulling out both guns and shooting all over the place. This is not the point. And this isn't the spirit of what I'm trying to say. However, I would like you to know that this knowledge has come from talking with elders from this church from the 90s up to the present, reading through 40 years of minutes, engaging in conversations, 
having heard from elders long past and present, including other men from the presbytery, that CPC has corporately sinned over its lifetime, which is actually true for any church. Really, every church should be examining itself like this. I didn't come in looking for this stuff, you know. But after talking with so many people, the session and I have realized that we as a body need to corporately repent. Now, even though I may not have been personally involved in any of these things I'm about to say, this does not mean that I have not been personally guilty of the things that I'm about to say in other elderships and other churches. Part of the sermon time and my time this week was repenting for these various various things that I have done in different churches that I've been at as an elder. I am not standing up here as a man without sin. I am standing up here as a representative of Jesus Christ. And I have been put over this body, and I am accountable for this body, as well as the session is, and for things that have been done here, whether I did them or not. And I am not angry at anybody, just so you know. I just want us to have Christ walking among us. I want him to control us. And in order to do this, we must repent of the ways that we as a corporation have disobeyed God. I, we have not loved him properly. We've hurt others. And we have not uh, loved others as ourselves. I'm also not saying these words in a vacuum. These things have been wrestled over. They have been prayed over and are carefully worded by the elders. We have unanimously agreed upon these failings, and honestly, these aren't the only ones. Next week, as I mentioned, we are going to have a time of confession with the elders. We are going to publicly repent before God and you of these as well as other things, whether directly done by the members of this session or not. But I want you to know that I'm as I'm hitting heavily upon the leadership of the church, that we don't know all the sins that we or others have committed. We and others will commit sins in the future. We can only repent of the things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us. And so we must be people quick to repent and confess of these things, and we must pray that the Spirit of Christ continues to convict us over and over again as we continue to fail in sin. There are sin patterns that have been in this church since its beginning. And these sins have affected other churches and even our presbytery. I spoke with Steve McGee and we talked through this. And he said these things, and by the way, Steve McGee was a pastor here back in the 90s. And he says these sins back in the 90s are continuing to haunt the presbytery and other churches within our presbytery. We think, we think, that it is important to repent over anything that this corporate body has done to dishonor God and the name of Christ. And so I'm going to give you a short list of the ways that this church has sinned against God, but I first want to start with the first one that indicts us personally. And that is how we are involved in a failure to love Christ. We have sinned as a body first against Jesus by abandoning the love we had for him at first. We've allowed our desires, our ministry goals, our cultural influences, busy lives, and many other things to distract us from loving him with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We have not discipled and exhorted one another to renew our love to Jesus. 
Now, before I continue with the next few areas where I believe we must repent, you need to remember something, that many of the sins have been ongoing in the church since the 80s, and even possibly our inception. A letter in the 90s, written by an elder, John Breeding, was agreed upon just recently by Dick Judkins. I met with, I met with him. He asked me for the letter. He read it and replied and said, I concur with the statements of this letter. Steve McGee, who was also here, concurred with the statement in the letter by John Breeding. And it is found in the last three parts of this, of this um, what we're talking about. These issues have been plaguing this church. And as far as Steve knows, as far as I know, as far as the session knows, these have never been repented of. And so... They are like Achan's cursed things. They must be cast out. First, for the session. The session has sinned against God and his people by being lax in our responsibility of shepherding God's people of which the Holy Spirit has made us overseers. Whether this was from a lack of training, a lack of zeal, or being busy with other things that seemed important, it is irrelevant. We are guilty of this sin. Second, the session has sinned against God and his people by being lax in our duties of being in prayer and the word regarding issues of doctrine and oversight of the doctrine and practices of the church. Third, the session has sinned against God and his people by failing to exercise church discipline consistently by requiring God's people and ourselves to obey the ninth commandment and by failing to diligently follow the biblical process of church discipline when necessary. This particular one, for sure, has been around since the beginning. And the other two also as well in various ways. Fourth, the session has sinned against God and his people by being lax in operating as an elder-led congregation, in leading the congregation in the worship of God and exercising proper governance of it. Fifth, the session has sinned against God by failing to clearly distinguish between their preferences and true biblical guidance by the Spirit of Christ when reaching decisions. These next three were in that letter of indictment. The session is sinned against God, and this is found in a letter to, from the presbytery to this congregation in the 80s. As far as I know, it's never repented of it. The session is sinned against God by exercising control instead of exercising biblical authority. And they differentiated between control and authority. Authority is what you exercise. Control is what you make people do. And you can be very harsh with your authority by controlling. In doing so, it has failed to utilize the gifts given to this church by the Holy Spirit. Seventh, the session has failed to communicate appropriately, timely, and clearly with God's people regarding various critical things, whether they involve decisions, church discipline cases, with elders, or other things. This church has had many things that have happened, and the congregation was not told the full facts. And this has been a problem since the beginning. Whether these things are intentional sins of commission or unintentional sins of omission, they are still sins and they are vile before the living God. So what do we do? First, the session should and will repent corporately before God and this body for any complacency or complicity in any and all of these matters. And not just for the session in this moment, for the session 
for the entire history of this church. We should humble ourselves before God, seeking his forgiveness for our failures and clinging to his mercy, expecting restoration and renewal. The session should then walk with the fruit of repentance and lead this church toward a deep and intense pursuit of Christ. I want to say something. My dear brother, Steve McGee, said, if I can help in any way, and if I need to be a part of any of this repentance, I will. We, second, as individuals and families, should also consider how we have failed. Now, maybe our walk with Christ is characterized by a lack of love for him or for lukewarmness or has been. Maybe this wasn't the case until some of the sins of our eldership became transparent to you. And the sins of the eldership drug you and you feel you got drugged down into a complacency and even a lack of love for Christ and passion for Christ. And maybe it drug you into breaking the ninth commandment and talking about things that you shouldn't have. We are responsible for pursuing God even if no one else around us does. You don't, I don't get a sin pass because leadership is failing. You don't, you, you don't get a free pass. Guilty before God of the things that you sin with, regardless of whether somebody encourages you to do it or not. For, but I want to tell you this, and this is where I want to end on. If we repent, Jesus Christ himself will come in this church. He will walk among this church. And he will come and dine with us and give us sweet fellowship. Repentance is the means of renewal and delight in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the sermon was not meant as an attack against the session. It was not meant as an attack against you. It was meant as the way I think the Holy Spirit brought this about through prayer, through much prayer. I've been praying since I got here in February. And through conversations, it was time to come and to bring this out and allow you to hear where we have come from and allow us as a body to turn and repent so that we can experience the joy that we have in Christ. And I think that joy is how we will see others come to know Christ. And that's our heart. We want to see people come to know Christ. And if we are living without Jesus in our midst, why would we think that we have anything at all for anybody to be a part of? So, Jesus is knocking. Will you open the door of your heart? The session has, will you? Oh Lord, our God, oh, what a weighty sermon. Oh, what heaviness. Send your spirit. Let the pain of the conviction 
drive us to the joy of delighting in Jesus, of seeing him in everything and of delighting to be with him? Would you make Jesus so real to us? Would you make him so clear to us that we would pursue him, that we would follow him, that we would chase after him and he would be our chief delight and he would be the one who is preeminent in all things? Forgive us, O God, for how we've let our love grow cold. Forgive us, O God, of how we have loved things of the world and how we've made so many excuses of why we can't pursue Jesus. Forgive us, O God. Renew our hearts, we pray. We need you. We can't do it without you. We need your spirit. Please be with us, we pray. And do these things for your glory, for your honor. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.